if it's crowded, you yeah. don't really get the same feeling, you know? But if you're alone there, whenever Bill Gates goes on a bucket list jaunt or jolly or whatever you want to call them, yeah, yeah. The, the local people on the ground close it for him. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, no one, else is, no one else is allowed there. And he comes and goes around it and he's just him and because uh, it used to be Melinda as well. Okay. Yeah, so he okay. went to Victoria Falls. They closed Victoria Falls, not not the water, of course, but the people <laughs> closed it off the day before and the day after, just to be sure, you know, in case he ch changed the date. Oh, the same kind ridiculous. of thing that happened when when W. Bush came to, to came to Arusha. It was all a bit it's a bit mental, you know. Then and uh, in fact, in fact, one lodge they went and they they paved the road all the way to the lodge because they thought he was going to visit, and then he never came. He went to the mosquito net factory. <laughs> instead which funded by bill and melinda gates funnily enough Happy New Year, everyone. This is Gunnar here with a new episode of Bucket List Birding. This is episode number three, and I'm interviewing James Wollstonecroft, who is a bird guide in Tanzania for Eagle Eye and for Wings Birding Tours. We're covering a lot of ground in this wide-ranging conversation about bucket list destinations in South America, in North America, Africa and Europe, and also a lot of uh, wildlife experiences and bucket list birds. Maybe the most important thing we are talking about is how this uh, COVID pandemic is affecting uh, guides and local entrepreneurs, conservation, ecotourism entrepreneurs around the world. And James has uh, had given a lot of thought to this subject in the recent months and will be telling us more about this. You find extensive show notes on um, sevenwondersbirding.com. There's a tab for the podcast where you find show notes not only to this episode but also the previous ones and uh, also links uh, to everything that we talked about including videos and photographs um, that are embedded into the uh, web page. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. James Wollstonecroft, uh, very nice to meet you here online. We haven't met in person, but um, you have a long history in Tanzania and now you are in Spain. Very much welcome to the show, the Bucket List Birding podcast. Hello, Gunnar. Very glad to be here and happy to be talking to you. It's uh, been a few weeks now. We have been in contact because we are both quite worried about how the lack of ecotourism in a lot of places around the world is actually having serious effects on conservation. And uh, so you have a plan. You have a plan of, of at least trying to get something published, what is happening right now and collecting information. Can you tell us a little bit about this? Well, I, I started uh, mailing a few people around the world 
who I knew were active or had traveled extensively in what people call the global south, um, where uh, this sort of infrastructure of con conservation is less established and, and where therefore uh, there is more likelihood that um, endangered species are dependent upon grassroots ecotourism activities whereby village scale entrepreneurs uh, have been making a little bit of money effectively by conserving the habitat, uh, by being guides, uh, by having photographic hides, by running guest houses and so on. So um, that's where the idea came to me because, you know, obviously my income strands dried up um, because Tanzania became a, a no-go destination for, uh, for Europeans for quite a time. Um, and I think it's still on the red list for the British. Mm -hmm. as are most of the places really worth going to all south america <laughs> in terms well, of yeah. bio, no, sorry <laughs> all south america as well on the yeah it's so basically list, all yeah. the biodiversity all the really biodiverse rich nations are considered unsafe from the point of view of uh, getting sick so uh, we'll leave that though because that although that's what's caused it um i then went on to speak to people uh and sure enough yes uh, it seems from the information that I've gleaned so far. Um, Indonesia sounds like it's pretty bad, but I haven't followed that up because my contacts have, have not had the time recently. But uh, Indonesia seems bad and the Andean region of South America seems bad. Uh, the Gambia, for example, in West Africa is very bad. Morocco is bad. Um, Tanzania, for example, which I know the best, uh, of late is not is not so bad because uh, a lot of the that has a very strict government at the moment and uh, basically the rule of law is is quite uh, strictly enforced and it has a good uh, conservation legislation by and large although undoubtedly uh, there may be some slight degradation in the mountain areas and I think I think it's the mountain areas particularly those areas which have fallen or lie outside of the larger established protected areas that are managed by the state or by private NGOs and so on. It, it's those uh, forested, often hillside areas that are under a lot of pressure, middle elevation. And uh, these are the areas I think where um, ad hoc ecotourism as it used to exist and hopefully may exist again. Um, that was the area where the greatest success was being achieved. Um, in Southwest China, for example, you have the same similar kind of thing, but in China, it's completely different now because you've got a domestic tourism industry and a large number of relatively affluent or, or significantly affluent Chinese um, birder photographers or digital birders who are keen listers, but they only count things if they get a photograph of it. So those are the kind of people that are supporting those lodges and those blinds or hides that have been set up, you know, at which various rare birds appear. So you get the, the idea of what I'm, what I'm talking about. Uh, it depends very much on the degree of domestic tourism that the country has been able to generate uh, as to whether the impact has been, I imagine, extreme or not so bad. You know, that, that seems to be my assessment at the moment. Uh, countries like the Gambia, very much dependent on 
a lot of young lads and not just men, young women and young men as guides, also Uganda to a lesser extent. Um, a lot of people benefited from ecotourism, especially bird ecotourism, but not just bird ecotourism. And that's what's become constrained. Uh, a lot I've heard that quite a lot of guides in South America have had to go back to previous kinds of employment. People have gone into balsa wood plantations, back to farming or in a way, if, if, if those people existed within a community where extended families and they still have land or the extended family has land, then it's not been so bad. It's the smaller people who'd, who'd, who'd grown out of that and entered the kind of next level of the market economy and taken out loans on cars and stuff like that. Those are the people that uh, have also suffered greatly. Yeah. So, so that, that, that would probably um, meet with your appraisal from Peru, I would think, you know. Wouldn't it? Yeah, you, so, you, you know better than me. Yeah, so here in Peru, uh, for what I can see, a lot of the tour guides, of course, have been working, uh, showing people birds around here has been suffering quite a bit. Now, Peru has opened uh, recently, but we obviously and we're not getting the numbers that we used to get. So it, it's just sort of keeping us a little bit afloat. And meanwhile, we're still as we were mentioning on the red list for the UK, which is like a big market for birders and natural history lovers. And also even in the US, there is a recommendation not to travel to Peru right now. Uh, we're on their level three, we used to be level four, but still. And this is uh, in, uh, interestingly, in contrast to that the COVID level as we are recording this on the 5th of October are extremely low in Peru and everyone is talking that we're waiting for the third wave but the third wave ha hasn't gotten here yet so <laughs> it's interesting to see how the world still thinks that we are uh, that things are really really bad here in Peru while they're they definitely are not. I mean, people are protecting themselves with masks and so forth and keeping distance. And there's a regulation on how many people you can be inside restaurants and shops, etc. Uh, schools are still closed uh, and will be closed until their summer holiday, which starts around Christmas. And then schools should be opening. Then after the summer holidays would be like in March or something. Uh, so. Uh, in those terms, uh, yeah, Peru is sort of open uh, for visiting, uh, but I, I'm faring, and I don't know, but I, I'm faring that many places in Peru have uh, suffered greatly, and especially in the southeast where uh, ecotourism was like an alternative to forestry and gold mining. And uh, we already know that the illegal mines down in the southeast in the Madre de Dios area have created immense uh, environmental problems uh, in previous years with lots of mercury sort of floating into the ecosystem. People are getting mercury poisoned. They're eating fish that is uh, sort of uh, infested with mercury. And, and the health level is is actually quite serious for a lot of kids, etc. cetera. Uh, though there is a lot of uh, lobbying in Madre de Dios for gold mining. So even 
the political representatives that are voted for are actually the, the gold miners themselves. So it's very hard in that area to, uh, to do conservation. And now with the uh, economy being so unstable around the world, the gold prices have gone up. So I, I'm, I'm quite uh, worried that this, uh, uh, what we've been seeing in the past, that the, there's encroachments of the, uh, even the protected areas, the natural system of protected areas in Peru, the national parks, et cetera, have been encroached by gold miners, these uh, illegal, informal gold miners. And so, uh, yeah, it's uh, definitely something that is going on in that area. And maybe something that you can shed more light on when when you are yeah. coming to Peru, yeah? <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. We, we, that's still... We're still in negotiation stages, but that 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 would be my uh, main focus. Would be that that Madre de Dios region, um, and I am hearing from um, the managers and uh, people who work within the ecotourism business there that things are uh, bad on several fronts or in several ways. You know, the hunting has increased and. Um, deforestation or individual trees being taken out all that all the kind of things that you would expect when there's less less oversight and when there's no incentive to do otherwise and and and, and this is what you know that kind of scenario is what made me worry about this in the first place because there was a very well publicized or there was a tendency to 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 cast a very positive light on the whole lockdown thing um, from a European point of view and the exactly. mainstream media. The mainstream media came up with lots of, you know, wild boar wandering down streets in the middle of, of an Italian uh, village and so on. So, so, so that people got to think that, oh, well, you know, it's all, it's all lovely out there in the same way that they used to when they watched David Attenborough programs and think it's all sort of like uh, uh, pristine. There are vast pristine areas still in existence with no threats to them. And instead, the threats have just uh, multiplied or returned to a level that we really thought we wouldn't see again, or we hoped. We, we were led to believe that ecotourism would be uh, one of the solutions. Um, and so, uh, you know, private ecotourism ventures, to me, are part of the solution within a, a liberal capitalist society and it, it it was a possibility but now we're looking at a very different kind of world but that's a subject that uh, is for another day um yeah i hope to get there and i hope to, to see for myself but uh i'll come back to you next week about that one <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 definitely yeah. so uh i mean this puts things in a in a perspective in a way because like prior to covid uh, we had the uh, flight shame discussion, and I, I had friends sort of asking me about the morals of what I'm doing as a, for a business, just because I'm sort of promoting people to go around the world looking at wildlife and, and, and protected uh, threatened birds, etc. Uh, how could that really be in, in harmony with the idea that we have to do something about climate change. And so to me, that was a, a bit of a dilemma. On one hand, of course, as both you and I know, is that uh, all these sort of um, very local ecotourism uh, initiatives could not be sustained uh, unless 
there were <laughs> a couple of birders coming coming to look at these places, you know, and 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 to check them out and leave some of their eco dollars. It's the only I the reason why many of those forest patches are still standing. So that moral part for me was not not a sort of a big problem. Uh, but oh, but the the perception from people that was the big problem. And so what yeah. what could we as birders do about that? So one idea that I had and I I talked to Ian Campbell of uh, uh, tropical birding about this as, as well, and maybe something I maybe should try to do in the future, is that uh, because one thing is um, sort of putting money aside for uh, carbon uh, footprint offset or offsetting your carbon footprint, uh, because there's a lot of uh, not necessarily conservation-minded uh, projects that are still sort of carbon capturing but they're not so good for conservation so birders and naturalists are feel to some extent that they don't have any good alternatives to where, where to put their carbon offset and in the end well maybe they don't put down anything at all and 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 still have this sort of bad conscience and and uh, uh, friends of them will be telling them also that they you know shaming them uh, that uh, they shouldn't go around the world, etc. So it would be really good to have some sort of system where you can have a, a carbon fund that goes to a really good ecotourism, bird conservation-minded uh, projects, you know, that uh, around the world, and and that we as birders and operators, uh, especially, could sort of come together and put down a list of really good, worthy projects where people could. You know, put the money their carbon yeah that's a, that's a very good idea yeah that's a great idea that needs to be done i mean that needs to be done as people start to travel again yeah. that really needs to be done are you are you you're familiar with john hall of of mammal watching.com yeah yeah. He, yeah 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 he he uh he's, he's gone into this uh in some depth because he travels so much Mm -hmm. And uh, so he, he he flies a lot, you know, and he works for the UN. So so he 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 has a, 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 an extreme desire to see lots of mammals. Let's put it that way. It's the same yeah. the same vein, the same vein as as uh, global birders or big listers or whatever. However yeah. you want to to describe the bird fraternity like that. And uh, I think he's looked into it um, and would be an ideal person, I think, to kind of chair such a, a group, you know, of, of people. And uh, it does have to be done. Um, and I think it, but I'd just like to say, I think it has to be done uh, by a, a kind of loose association of practitioners and not handed over to the NGOs. Uh, I don't want to get it. I don't want to get into any uh, bad waters talking about NGOs here, but uh, I just feel the more people who, who have uh, direct involvement uh, and who do not have to follow a party line, um, which is often about the self-sustainability of the organisation rather than getting things done in terms of protecting forest and reforesting areas. But I, I do agree with you that I mean it, it very much that the carbon capture projects. It, it needs to be done by people oh, with ecological awareness in the countries in which they operate to prevent it being just greenwash in terms of a eucalyptus plantation in South America or in Africa. And I mean, that's not going to benefit very much. And it's certainly not going to benefit species with incredibly 
tight niche requirements that are the most threatened by often human activities of all kinds, but also by uh, the fragmentation of their habitat and the changes of the climate that are making those fragments uh, no longer viable for, for the species. So, yeah, it's, it, 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 I really do think it has to be done by us, if you like, by us all, by the yeah. birding community. By the by the you know the linking the neotropical bird club, the African bird club, the Oriental bird club in that kind of way. Those are, and those are the people who are who with with whom I'm in touch at the moment um, are yeah. all in those areas. I haven't gone to uh, say bird life about this 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 situation that we're in, this problem, um, because I don't think they would be flexible enough to pick it up and run with it you know i just don't think so it's unfortunate but that's the way they are so um yeah i, I think it has to be it has to be done in a very flexible way by by all the practitioners as many as we can get on board yeah yeah i i, I think both uh, myself and ian are in, in on the same terms here because also i'm seeing that um a lot of people have uh, problems with uh, the big organizations, overheads, etc. And what we really want as uh, the individuals, if we want them to actually put down the money for, for both bird conservation with a carbon uh, capturing uh, in mind at the same time, then it would be good if that money goes sort of straight to the projects without overheads you know so exactly exactly yeah. i mean that, that, that's it really i mean yeah. uh, the bigger organizations um you know like all these things they they develop they have initially a period of great energy but then they they develop a cumbersome kind of body weight of their own that becomes you know that has to be self-sustained and uh, and uh, and a lot of their core funding goes to that and even additional funding goes to that and, and then they come up with projects that uh, you know are kind of like white elephants or whatever the expression is they just uh, <laughs> lead balloons you know it doesn't work and they they it, it, you know there are too few decision makers although it doesn't appear this way there are too few decision makers chasing uh, ideas that are not actually going to you know put shovels into the ground or or or, or a fence up or a, help feed a family or provide a, a school or a clinic or whatever is necessary to 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 be with the people on the ground and i think that's the key thing you know flying in once a year you know there's a lot of um, i mean you have to really call it hypocrisy actually with a lot of organizations they fly their executives into places and uh you know scurry around and stay at good hotels and, and then go back again to the north or wherever um, yeah. It doesn't. It's not. It's not that. That's history. You know that. That's the old way, and it, it's. It's. That's not the way we want the future to to evolve. And I'm sure that's not the way the young people. I mean, people under the age of 20, 25. That's certainly not what they want, want to be see. They want to see happening. And if we want to keep nature observation, you know, the love of natural history, bird watching and whatever alive we've got to appeal to those younger people and prove that what we're doing is 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 justified and valid and valuable you know not so much valuable i think they see that but they they want to see us work out how it's going to work in practice and so i think yeah i think your idea is great yeah yeah so another thing that i've been sort of pondering on here like in peru what i see is that 
and and you've probably seen that in the in the um, in the south as well, is that there's a lot of areas that could be protected. I mean, our carbon footprint here in Peru per capita is not very high compared to the Western world, but yet we see a slash and burning of areas, huge areas, just to put down cows or whatever, you know. And why couldn't that forest patch be saved uh, by someone from the Northern Hemisphere just buying it, you know? And then it is it's extremely cheap, some of this land, and it's just goes burning to flames and then you know that's the end of that and then they put cows on it does peru export beef no not so much but i mean they're still eating a lot of beef here yeah, in yeah, peru. but yeah, if you yeah, look yeah. at brazil for instance you have the same problem sure. there. and there's yes. so there's so vast areas of land that is being converted into meat farms well, further south and east into soya that's the uh, the world we're in and um you know it's hard to see the future but uh, I do think that uh, it's very likely that we have seen uh, the libertarian period of human history. You and I have lived have lived through a very uh, a unique slot in human history, and that things are now going to, in a sense, close down or tighten up drastically. Um, uh, I think that's the geopolitical global sort of background against which all our forest saving has to be seen. And I do think that, that this also means that I think people won't be able to travel in the way that they have done uh, for very much longer. Uh, in ver various ways, it will become more difficult. And I think, you know, we'll have to choose more carefully uh, where we go for our holiday or whatever, you, your vacation and for our experience of the jungle, you know, whatever the experience of the mountains. I think that's going to because mm, I just feel that uh, there will be a, a, a trend of, of, of uh, tightening up. You know, we've seen this lockdown and now I think there will be, it will be less easy for people to, to, to travel in the, in, the, in the way that they did, which will reduce, you know, our flexibility, I think in, in some ways, you know, there's gonna be less money available coming from ecotourism. I, this is my hunch, really. It's just just based on on looking, you know, at the way things are going. So uh, both, you know, it, it, there's going to be pressure morally. There's going to be pressure financially and politically yeah. to perhaps travel less. And we'll be going back to more how it was in the 70s, early 80s. You know, as we reach this time in life as well, you do evaluate things differently. And this is where uh, the bucket list idea that you, that people talk about. Um, becomes uh, a much more pressing reality, you know, as, as the uh, as, as the sort of uh, reality of mortality gets uh, ever more inescapable, you know, as you get yeah, into yeah. our age. Exactly. So, and also the preciousness of everything, you know, the precious, how precious life itself is, not in one's own perception and living of it, uh, really, but the whole thing. And, you know, we are up against forces that are, uh, you know, like, the world that's called the world economic system you know is 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 kind of like a a beast and it, it's got its own energy and it, it's been built upon uh limitless consumption but it's clear to everybody that that can't go on i don't mean to pour cold water on anything but it just is it is the reality i think that it, it can't go on and it, 
you know, I mean, hypocrisy does get pretty hard to bear at times. Jim Britton is a good example, you know, the people who charge around making year list or their life list, the amount of uh, carbon that they are burning, what they're creating carbon dioxide is shocking, <laughs> really, to what end? So I think we're also looking at more or less the waning of, of listing as, as the main thrust, if you like, that came from the ability to identify all the birds and the ability, all the technology and the books that enables us to, to give and put a name to all these birds. I think that was all perfectly understandable, but I don't think it's here to stay. And I think people will have to choose and say, you know, am I going to go to Antarctica? Am I going to go to the Amazon? You know, and it's not going to be every year that, you know, people are going to some far flung destination from where they live. They're going to have to make uh, a lot harder choices. I think that's introduces your idea of the bucket list because you know i've been thinking about this for a lot in the last 18 months about the places that i would really like to see still and it is for me it's really it's the places um but by place you know that obviously means there's a lot of characters in that place the the the, the you know the animal beings and the, the forest and everything else that i want to see so yeah. uh, i don't mean i don't mean place in terms of you know a pile of buildings let's say yeah but i mean the, yeah. the bucket list will be different for for different people but i think it's very important to include because that's such a that's such a, um, a popular expression nowadays with the bucket list you know what's on your bucket list and so forth so i think it would be a good thing to actually include you know some some birds and some mammals in that bucket list or some natural history events uh, that uh, spectacles. Uh, obviously, there's uh, there's a risk in this, of course, that some of these uh, bucket list events gets too popular. But uh, I, I think that is a secondary thing to worry about. First, we need to get people uh, interesting and caring about nature, and and the opportunity to get those people into caring about nature nowadays is larger than ever because we got the, all this sort of visual promotion about uh, natural history bucket lists through the social medias so um, and 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 as well television and so forth you know uh, that that makes it also very attractive to people that say you know i want to see the 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 gnu uh, the wildebeest uh, migration in in the um, in in eastern africa etc you know that, that that's on my bucket list etc etc so um I think uh, this uh, appreciation for nature is something that should be promoted rather than being shamed, you know, because... Uh, exactly, yeah. Yeah. yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, but, you know, I have this, I have this um, uh, mantra, if you like, that biodiversity begins at home, you know, and, and also the, the, another thing I trot out all the time is like the doorstep naturalist. And it's like you should, you know, every individual who wants to go and see, say, the the great migration, wildebeest migration, they they should also put their own house in order. You know, I mean, I found in guiding that there's a lot of people um, who are very alien to ecology and to the to the kind of ecological realities that we should face up to. You know, once again, you're back into a, a complex area where it, we're, we're stitching into the to the bigger meta problem of, of the way our society works, you know? So, 
unfortunately, a lot of people don't want to really get into it. And they certainly don't want to get into it uh, at the end of a tough day in the Jeep in East Africa. Well, tough, relatively speaking, you know, but uh, they, so one doesn't tend to discuss it with them. But I, I do uh, with those individuals that do want to talk about it. I have talked about it a lot over the last 20 years. A lot of retired people who tend to be the people with the money to do it. They will sit and chat about where they're going to go to next. And, and, and one thing I, I've found is that people will often do that, even when they're in a really wonderful place where, you know, I'm living there. I'm living there, you know, I, I'm living there and we see something. And I, I have to sort of say to them, this isn't something you see every day. You know, this is this, this is this is this is worthy of a bit of awe, you know, because, you know, how like, the awesome word thrown around and the stunning word is thrown around in the brochures, you know. Oh, it used to be an online still, uh, on the online brochures. It's stunning this and the awesome that. And uh, sometimes when you're in the in in the presence of of such an event, you know, a process, ecological process is taking place right around you and in front of you. And and some people are just not are not picking up on it. So there's a great role for educators, you know. Um, but my concern is more the you know the the youth, you know, because. Uh, both the, the youth in the countries where that are, you know, rich in biological capital, as people, some people want to call it, but in countries like Tanzania, which, you know, are phenomenally wealthy nations in that sense, and poor nations in terms of the per capita financial income per annum of, of, of the families. So, I mean, there's all these strange kind of contrasts and paradoxes that we have to live within. Because, uh, I, I, you know, I, I felt very much in Africa, like, if all this um, tourism stops tomorrow, if it stopped overnight, nobody flew here anymore, what would happen? And I used to wonder what would happen. And, and when flight change started, I used to think, you know, they're going to stop, they, whoever they are, they're going to stop the plebs flying around and only the rich would be able to fly around. And yeah. that kind of, for, eight, for 18 months, that actually happened. Exactly. But I have to say, <laughs> I have to say from where I am now at the, at the Strait of Gibraltar, uh, there's 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 lots of cargo ships so the stuff is still moving and uh, from china to everywhere else and uh, <laughs> there are plenty of planes the last few days in particular the skies have been full of people going somewhere and it, it's 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 october so uh there's a lot of travel happening um it's must be just going to certain destinations i suppose and not not going from europe to peru for example yeah. um but I, I, let's assume it's let's assume it's going to come back to at least half what it was before. Say, I mean, maybe that's something we could say. So it comes back to half what it was before. Then you may be thinking about this triage, you know, of which areas can be saved and which areas can't, and all that sort of stuff. So that's the kind of things I want to think about and talk to people in Peru about, and 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 really develop uh, my ideas of, of what's possible, really, uh, set against a very rapidly changing um trend in global governance i suppose you could say you know it it it, it varies very much depending on the country you're in I'm, i've only had post i've only had coronavirus experience of of britain of tanzania britain and spain so i've not really had you know those are the only three countries i've actually been in you've you've traveled more but not during uh, covid i haven't traveled at all the the only thing i've did now recently was going back to sweden and and germany and uh um, oh yeah so it's the same the marathon, with me. Yeah. two, yeah. two yeah. countries in europe two countries yeah. in europe and uh and uh, and one other so yeah it's the same it's interesting to see how 
people in different parts of the world are reacting to COVID. Here in Peru, the new cases are extremely low right now. It's lower than it's been uh, from the onstart of the pandemic, really, and, and in between the two waves. And we haven't had the third wave. It hasn't come yet. It hasn't arrived yet, even though I, I saw in the news uh, recently that we have the Delta here in Peru, but seemingly for eight weeks now, it's been at the same numbers. I mean, it's the same new number of cases on a daily basis as it was uh, two months ago or eight weeks ago. So, and, and it's just sort of seems to be constant. It's lower rate per million than say in Sweden. Uh, here we got like 23 cases per uh, per million, while in Sweden they have 57, I think, or something like that, uh, new cases per, per million. So um, uh, everything looks uh, extremely well. But when I look at around me here in Peru, I see everyone wearing face masks wherever they go. You know, uh, you go into a store or, or like a restaurant or a supermarket or something, you have to wear double face masks. And in Sweden from October 1st, there's no restrictions whatsoever. They're taking away all the restrictions. So it, it kind of goes to show that how differently uh, different countries are reacting to the COVID threat. So here we take it very seriously. People are getting vaccinated as well. It's a bit slower than it has been in the, in the Western world, but they're still sort of vaccinating about 2 million people per week. So, uh, uh, which is not too bad, you know, and now, I think in many areas, at least in the in areas where uh, like cities, like towns like Lima and the surroundings and the bigger towns around in, in Peru, uh, the uh, vaccination uh, percentage is actually quite high and especially among the elderly people. And there is uh, very, very, very little anti-vaccine campaigns going on in, in Peru. So everyone sort of are doing their part to to protect the country, so to speak, and protect each other and, and are getting vaccinated. They have had a very, very good campaign about uh, putting your shoulder up for Peru with sort of sort of tossing up your the sleeve of your arm, so showing your your upper part of the shoulder arm and you know putting that forward to Peru. Poner el hombro para el Peru. Uh, and, and that, that has been, yeah, it's been an excellent campaign, and everyone is very much sort of getting vaccinated and so forth, in spite of the political turmoil that we have in Peru right now. But uh, the, the the campaign is going really, really well. So it's interesting to see how how different it is in in different countries. What's the most favourable way you can see the reason why other countries? Let's look at Britain. There is no rational, scientific, logical reason that they maintain a certain country as a, a red you know danger country yeah. uh, as far as i can see so it's all it's all when you start to look at it it looks to me as though it's a very much a political aspect to it in terms of of that and even in vaccine the varieties the species of vaccine that are considered acceptable you know so there's been a lot of uh, strange behavior it's been a remarkable 18 months and I do think it's changing the world. I do think, though, that I tend to go back to thinking of how it used to be before, 
imagining it being like that again. I don't see that now. People will be far, far more uh, frugal with their traveling. I, I don't know whether that, that that's that's an objective to try to encourage people to travel less in order to reduce the risk of future pandemics if it's if it's created a kind of global state of alarm you know that's in, in i don't know in peru but in in uh, in spain when it started in in uh, sort of march 20 february march 20 that it was a, i think a state of alarm is what was announced you know and i think that's a good word for it in english you know that, uh, translated um and Griffin Vulture's just flown past the window. <laughs> just got a bit sidetracked <laughs> there. A good bird too. I had yesterday. I had about thirty circling over my head when I was in the field, and I had to sort of say, uh, I'm "Not dead yet. You know, it's okay. You can move on." Yeah, <laughs> I, I, the Griffin Vulture is like the peak right now, right? The, the first week of October. It's uh, like the the peak of migration oh, over to Reef. Oh, moving through. Yeah, I, I'm, yeah, not, yeah. I'm not. I'm not um, the the best person to ask about such things because. Uh, it, it seems to be shifting markedly like this autumn is completely different we arrived um into this house exactly a year ago i mean we, we went i went back to from tanzania to britain to scotland in march and then we left in september and we moved into this house the first week of october and uh, last year was parched yellow brown completely dry and this year there's been two rainstorms in the last month and uh, everywhere is really green. Uh, and so it's amazingly different. And uh, bird movements are completely different too in that there's uh, daily quite large numbers of yellow wagtails going through. At this time last year, there were none, you know, there were very few and far between. So, uh, so I don't know, that's a, that, you know, so I don't often don't go with this, you know, it's peak uh, date because I think certainly beaters, for example, this year, uh, departed earlier than they're supposed to. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah. Earlier than earlier than the ornithologists would like them to. Yeah, <laughs> they were all there yeah. to see the beaches and they were gone. Birds are getting earlier, and I think they're also leaving earlier from Europe. A lot of them, yeah. especially uh, passerines. And this place was very dry from the middle of June till the end of September. I suppose Tarifa would be on some people's bucket list. Oh yeah, uh, definitely. I mean that that's uh, yeah. certainly uh, one of the great spectacles of. Uh, migration in europe i had uh, had some amazing experiences in in southern spain and i had hoped actually that i would have been in southern spain almost around right now after my marathon because i had uh, one of my seven wonders boating tours was actually a trip that was focused to go and see the iberian the uh, iberian links in the uh, andujar area but uh, I didn't get any people to sign up for the trip, even though Spain was perfectly okay to visit. This was sort of a very nice bucket list thing that you could combine the uh, Iberian links with uh, visiting uh, Granada and uh, Cordoba on the way and, and seeing this fantastic uh, uh, mountain country where, where, where you have all these raptors with the Spanish imperial eagles, etc. And then I was offering also where the people wanted to take advantage of being the best time of, for migration, like an extra week coming to the Tarifa area also to, to um, watch the migration. But uh, as I said, I didn't get anyone signing up for the trip. So hopefully by next year, I'll, I'll get some people. But uh, let's come back to the bucket list. Uh, what are this is a question i ask everyone that is coming on the show what are your top uh, bucket list um, uh, experiences birding wildlife that you have 
experience so far uh, in different places in the world, James. You mentioned the wildebeest migration, the, the, the movable feast, as George Schaller called it. It's a fantastic experience to be part of and to see the animals crossing the Mara River, for example, clearly very fearful of crocodiles and to see uh, yearling wildebeest being taken by crocodiles and stashed on the bank and then the crocodile comes back to take another, you know, is uh, clearly a, a bucket list event or experience. Memories are very fickle and tricky thing and, and most memorable experiences have not necessarily been, for me, the very grandiose, you know. If it's too pre-packaged, I don't think I get as much of a charge out of the experience psychologically, spiritually, mentally, energetically, you know, I don't get as much of an effect. And some of the most moving things and uh, wonder, wondrous things have, have often been relatively insignificant events. What I would like to say is that uh, the location is paramount, but within that is the, the conditions, you know, when you're there. And as you referred to earlier, if it's crowded, you yeah. don't really get the same feeling, you know. But if you're alone there, whenever Bill Gates goes on a bucket list jaunt or jolly or whatever you want to call them, yeah, yeah. The, the local people on the ground close it for him. So yeah, I yeah. mean, no one else is no one else is allowed there, and he comes and goes around it, and he's just him. And because uh, it used to be Melinda as well, get, yeah. So he went to Victoria around. Falls. They closed Victoria Falls, not not the water, of course, but the people <laughs> closed it off the day before and the day after, just to be sure, you know, in case he ch changed the date. Oh, the same kind ridiculous. of thing happened when when W. Bush came to, to came to Arusha. It was all a bit, it was a bit mental, you know. Then and uh, in fact, in fact, one lodge, they went and they they paved the road all the way to the lodge because they thought he was going to visit, and then he never came. He went to the mosquito net factory. <laughs> instead which funded by bill and melinda gates funnily enough but uh yeah it's uh, in africa you get to see because arusha airport i don't you must have been through there arusha yeah. airport everybody who's anybody the great and the good the entire anybody who's ever been to davos has definitely been through been through arusha airport so you can see yeah the great and the good there uh, randomly almost at any, at any time you never know who's gonna who's gonna drop in and of course in tanzania there are lodges that cater only to the, the ubermensch, you know, and you have to have uh, a vast amount of money just to stay there. Now, I have described a lot of these Tanapa areas in Tanzania as being like the royal hunting parks of medieval Europe in that the riffraff are kept out and the ordinary people are thrown off. When I'm taking my tours, I have a selection of lodges which are often in sort of on the edge between the, the national park and these in exclusive areas that are run for the for the elite and uh, so we we kind of act as sort of uh, poachers and we go along the edge so some of my best uh, wildlife I shouldn't be saying this really but some of my best wildlife experiences have been sort of poaching along the edge of these hyper exclusive zones where um, you have to put the lid of the truck down for a while so that you don't get uh, spotted as being on a game drive because there are places in Tanzania where you're allowed to drive that road it's a road and you're allowed to drive through but you're not allowed to do a game drive because it's, the land is under administration of a uh, private concession wow. so that's a kind of, kind of farcical situation where it, 
if we're questioned, we say, oh, no, 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 we're not on a game drive. We're just trying to, we've got to get to this airport. So the driver will say, no, I've got to take them to the airport, even though, in fact, we're going to another lodge on the other side of the valley. So, right. uh, so, right. so that was a trick that I uh, used, to, used to employ in order to get into areas where you could have the real, oh, some of the very best experiences. Because it's sad to say, but these very uh, exclusive preserves are um, better managed than the... Uh, national parks in terms of burning you know because there's a big problem incredibly contentious subject in Africa but uh, burning in order to maintain these vast the vast wildebeest migration of the, the sort of East African lawnmower but the, the vast wildebeest migration is something of an artificiality in itself you see in a way I now live on a cattle ranch in southern Spain so I get the safari experience sometimes even here especially in August, September, when they're, when they're let out into the valley, all the cows. And uh, it, it, it's, it's the nearest I can get to it. And the carving uh, is to be, uh, has to be amongst the, the wildebeest when they're carving. But, uh, but, but when you're amongst the wildebeest, um, especially if it's been moist, if it's been raining recently, the, the number of houseflies sometimes is just absolutely, is, is incredible. Houseflies and lesser houseflies are so much that you basically have to put the windows up and the roof down. And then it's just more TV, you see. So yeah. uh, East African safaris are a difficult one. And I always try, although you're, you know, I, of course, you know, a great respecter of the rules, but do tend to break them quite a lot. So you're not supposed to get out of the vehicle. You're certainly not supposed to get all your customers, clients, friends, whatever, associates, your wageni, it is, and sweetly out of the vehicle. But you are allowed to stand within 20 uh, meters of the vehicle and you're allowed to get out to answer the call of nature so uh in doing this you can get if you know a particularly good place to be you can get your people out and get them to separate up and then some can have a kind of uh, what i dare to call slightly more spiritual experience of where they are and actually be here now if you know what i mean and try to turn off all the mental chatter and just like wow i'm actually here and so that's what I meant is that that feeling of, wow, I'm actually here. You, you can actually get that almost anywhere if you're in the right frame of mind. But it definitely happens when something remarkable happens. Like you see a kill or, or, or you, you know, you're on foot and you encounter a buffalo. Uh, you know, these are the kind of, I think they're just, you know, you talk about bucket list, but um those experiences when you're a bit close to kicking the bucket <laughs> is, uh, you know, is, is what the hunters all go for. And then, of course, Tanzania has huge hunting areas. And so the hunters, and we're not that much different from them, I don't think. So it's a question of, um, then it's a question of adrenaline, isn't it? And the breakdown of that adrenaline, I think, in the system. But uh, yeah, encountering big game on foot is, is completely different from encountering it from behind a tinted glass window of a Toyota safari vehicle. I, I know that after 20 years of uh, being in East Africa. But one place I would single out is Ngorongoro Crater. I've been down there, I don't know how many times, but and you, latterly I've been thinking when I go down, you know, it, maybe it's, it's dry and dusty or it's wet and wet, overcast and wet and something, and I think, oh, it's not going to be a very good day today. It never fails to be a really uplifting experience it just never fails that place is unique utterly yeah. unique and, and magical i mean it really is magical so as long as you don't do the chasing everybody else and as long as you pursue your own route 
within the crater and don't sort of scan around with the bins and then you see 25 cars and you know that's where the lions are so you don't you don't do that you, you find your own animals and i think that that that's that's key to the whole thing is you, the guide has to be pretty flexible uh and think ahead you know you've got to have strategy and tactics when you go into ngorongoro crater but it's big enough that it it um in my experience, it's never seemed crowded, except yeah. at the. Have you been? You've been the the picnic site is the only. Yeah, place the picnic site. I was just going to say the picnic the, site is the only place, <laughs> where, which is ridiculous. Where and you get, uh, where you get the kites stealing oh, your. <laughs> my first, my first stealing visit your lunch. There. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that they, this was this was a bucket list. My first visit to Ngorongoro Crater. I'd not long ago been in, um, not long before really, had been uh, Deborah Libanos in Ethiopia where in, and in the early 90s it was, I first went there I suppose, and used to feed the, <clears throat> the kites by hand or you'd throw, you'd throw food up for them and they'd take it on the cliff on the rim of the gorge there. So I thought the first time I went to that picnic site in Gorongoro, I thought I'd try the same thing there. <laughs> but uh, I hadn't even got the chicken drumstick uh, out of the box properly and I was facing the vehicles the side of the vehicle so that, you know it's taller than me a kite came between <laughs> the vehicle and my you know upright body and took took the drumstick out of my hand but the <laughs> hind claw the hind claw of, of its uh, foot went into my end of my thumb I uh, yeah I got a serious injection then yeah yeah that was that was an interesting experience um, and, and certainly you know, not a bucket list, but it, but it was a very, um, yeah, just a very uh, wow experience. And I was talking to Peter Davison about uh, this kind of thing the other week. He's still in Tanzania and um, works for Bird Studies Canada there. But uh, <laughs> so that's another story. But we were in Manyara National Park together in Land Rover um, last year. I uh, know the year before last. And... Um, we stopped to look at a bushbuck in thick woodland, uh, evergreen riparian woodland in the south end of Manyara. And we happened to park near a, a hollow tree which had a bee's nest in it. And uh, we both thought they were tsetse flies inside the truck at first. The windows were open, the roof was open, but the whole place seemed to be full of these large insects banging on, on the window and stuff. And But uh, as we realized that they were not tsetse flies they were bees they started to attack us and uh oh. pete reversed the car about 20 yards and stalled it and 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 then there's a lot of expletives and then we, then he got it into into forward then we went rushing forward round the corner stopped and then jumped out and spent the rest of the time pulling bees out of our uh, skin uh he said that was one of the most profound and uh, stimulating natural history experiences he's ever had. And uh, I'd agree. But it was, I, I almost had an anaphylactic shock from it. I mean, I, my skin went all red and, and sort of marbled all over because we're only in shorts and t-shirts, you know. So we got, we got about 24, 25, 26 stings each. I don't know, the middle 20 stings at least that we counted, pulling them out even the next day. But uh, we didn't do any more birding after that that day. I can tell you that much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so that 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 you know that was a very profound experience of nature. 
very very profound and like you know near not a near-death experience but certainly very real uh, well i don't know if you've been attacked by bees is that a is that a thing in south america yeah it can, it can be when you're sort of walking on a trail and there are bee nests uh, if you don't see them um and and you sort of move the branch where they're at and they can attack you and you can get like four fives uh, I mean, you will notice on the first one and then you sort of, oh, bees, and then you go running. But they're usually not very super, I mean, they keep territorial around the actual nest, but if you sort of run 15, 20 meters away, you yeah. usually get away with only two or three bites or so. But um, yeah, it could be a nuisance anyway. And, and, they, and they do hurt. They do hurt quite a bit. <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, these these are quite aggressive. These these are, I mean, these are honeybees, African honeybees. So, they are quite serious. Other than completely different from from that, though, it's it's um, orcas. You know, I think when you're in the presence of uh, super predators uh, or 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 clearly apex species, you know that you sort of feel your place in the in the in the web of life and the, you know you're, you you lose all that sense of hierarchies with humans at the top of it, top of it. <laughs> when you're in the present in the presence of orcas that's that's a, that's a, that's one um yeah there was a bird quest tour i was on once as a co-leader and uh in the Kuril Islands, and uh, yeah, we were in these Russian, little Russian sort of like the lifeboat, basically going ashore in one of the lifeboats, which uh, instead of having um, whatever the tiller on the on the engine at the back, it had a kind of a big spanner, a big rusty spanner. <laughs> uh, yeah, we we kind of accelerated amongst some orcas one time. That was quite a, an amazing experience. Uh, yeah. so, so 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 experiences at sea, I find very profound. So. You know, I don't know whether you can chase these bucket experiences that we're we're suggesting, or you, you know, you're you're wanting to suggest that they're, they're going to be different for everybody, for one from another, depending on on exactly. their personal personal preferences. You know, so it's hard to say, but there are, you know, we could draw up a list of an evening, you know, quite easily, couldn't we? Of 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 of, of a hundred, I suppose. You know, yeah, the, yeah. but definitely, you know, I I, I for me. Um, now, uh, you know, I, I, I decided, uh, without going into all the details of my life, but I mean, I spent long periods in different parts of the world trying to sort of eke out an existence by whatever means possible. And uh, so I kind of did Asia first, Africa, and to cut a long story, I did some of Europe first, then, then Asia, then Africa. And I always said uh, when I was in the Himalayas that I was leaving Latin America for my retirement. Well, uh, my feckless life has meant that there is no retirement in terms of comfort, but uh, at least I'm trying to get in the right time frame into South America. Because I said that, you know, that's the place where the most will be left by the time I'm late 60s. That's going to be the place with the most habitat intact. And uh, I think that's that's a, sadly that well not sadly it's good from the point of view of South America but <laughs> that has come that has come to pass. So what I want to see now is uh, I want to be or rather I want to be, you know, in a in a in a small quiet canoe going down the tributary of the Amazon. I want to see you know birds flying over the river, the big stuff, always the big stuff. Uh, I, I I think that's another thing. It's just to be 
I call it bird streaming, you know, it's like to be in the stream. It's, it's probably uh, when you're in a migration, for example, or, or, or even watching, you know, they're not so big nowadays, but murmuration of starlings and stuff. It's yeah. just a whole other thing. Or, or here where we live now, there's a lot of cranes. So we get most of your Swedish cranes. Well, the ones that couldn't be bothered to come this far now. Uh, the population in Lahanda has really increased. And uh, so, so we have lots of cranes here and, and, and just the, the a kind of, you know, a quiet uh, dawn uh, with the mist rising, the sun coming up and the cranes bugling and flying around you. I mean, it's just incomparable. I mean, it doesn't get any better. Human beings have always uh, been moved by cranes, haven't they? So, yeah. uh, you know, coming from Sweden, so, so, so cranes, but going back to South America, yeah, yeah, I, there's 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 bucket list creatures still for me, um, and I suppose, you know, jaguar, and giant otter, giant river otter, mm -hmm. and uh, and then getting up onto the Altiplano and to see that just to see the Andes and look for seed snipe and uh, you know all the classic ones that birders want to see in South America, and then getting down to Cape Horn, you know, really in South America, I want to get down Tierra del Fuego and and pay homage to those poor guys that were exterminated down there. You remember all those guys that used to dress up in that wacky stuff. <laughs> I yeah. can't remember the name, the name of the tribe, but they were basically, yeah, they, they were basically exterminated. So, uh, yeah, but it, you've seen they wore funny headgear. Uh, yeah. Uh, with, you know, masks, kind of whole, whole, well, not a whole thing that went over your head and all that. Yeah, those guys. So, um, uh, Tierra del Fuego has always, uh, has always appealed to me and the, and the, Orocaria pine forest of Chile. Have you been down there to those? To yeah, those yeah. 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 So there's so many, so many places in, in, um, in, uh, in, in the west side, of, primarily of Latin America, the Andes, the, Am the upper reaches of the Amazon, the Andes. But again, it's the thing of it's about, I'm a bit, you know, I've been short sighted since I was about 10 or something. And uh, I, I think relied on my ears a lot. And, uh, I put a lot of store in quiet, you know, or lack of machine noise is very important to me for, for having those bucket list experiences, really. You know, you don't want a machine there making a noise and stuff. And uh, yeah. I, found that a I found that a difficult thing increasingly on safaris as people have moved on to having to have a capture. They're having to have the experience, but also they've got to capture the experience. And I don't know that you've noticed this, but there are increasingly there are people who don't look, they don't use the binoculars. Some people don't even carry really binoculars anymore. And they just are firing off immediately. They eyeball a species. Then it's like, you know, when you've got, when you've got five, six people in a truck doing that, it's uh, it's more like being in a war zone than in a, than in a wildlife sanctuary. You know? So I, I hate to pour cold water on people's dreams, but you really, it's the way you play it, you know? So you can be in the place, but you can still be a complete idiot and mess it up for everybody else. So, That's so, so true. Uh, we've got to be mindful. I mean, it's basically, it's, 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 it's uh, mindfulness is crucial no matter where you are. And even even in a city, you know, having said everything I've said, you know, even in the city you can have really amazing experiences of nature. So uh yeah, it, it, it's possible anywhere. Yeah, I think that that with the cities is quite interesting here in Lima because when we were completely sort of isolated and we could not even go out just to go to the pharmacy or to the bank or so forth. Um there was um,
it was completely silent on the street, which is strange for Lima because you always hear honking cars, etc. And I think a lot of people started noticing nature around them that they didn't notice before. They noticed this bird song for the first time they never heard yeah. before. Yeah. And you can see that yeah. people started posting things on social media as well, asking, you know, what's this bird? People had never been interested in birds before. So uh, I did a lot of uh, sort of local excursions here in Lima. Just we, when we started opening up, they gave us like three kilometer radius from our house where we could go uh, doing recreation for an hour. So I offered uh, to people within that uh, three kilometer radius free bird guiding um, in uh, small parks, you know, in, in, in this uh, urban areas. And people were surprised that they could actually get like 20 birds within two hours, you know, 20 species of birds they had never seen before or they never ha hadn't really noticed. So I think the whole, uh, maybe the whole lockdown and everything has increased the awareness of nature. Oh, uh, that's lovely. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Uh, hopefully, that's... yeah, hopefully that sort of uh, become also like an in incentive for people to start uh, worrying about the conservation issues as well, just because they start being noticing the nature around them. Yeah, as of regards to the, uh, uh, I think <laughs> the digital camera uh, yeah. revolution now with the, uh, uh, with the, next, the next big thing with the mirrorless, well, we can actually delete those sounds. You don't have to have that activated on your good mirrorless good. cameras because it's just uh, it's it's not the sound of the shutter anymore it's just the sound exactly. that you put, exactly. put on there you know and you can turn it I off so, I know. <laughs> yeah yeah so, well, so it, it would be a good yeah. thing to Next remind time, people that hey you can actually turn off that sound it's quite annoying if there's a, if there's another time i will do that immediately that will be part of the briefing now in fact that yeah. will be number one on the briefing <laughs> number two will be it's it's considered impolite to hit anybody else with the end of your lens when you stand up and swing it around you see because like people are sitting in the back of a toyota uh, six people in the back of a stretch toyota yeah. and big big guys will stand up with a very long lens and just whack someone next to them you know it's actually dangerous becoming dangerous some but we, i won't say where what nationality those people were that did that but uh, i have seen people almost injured by this so yeah there has to be rules so yeah, yeah. And, and i think i think also that's again where the guide has a lot of um power on walking safaris in east africa the, the really good walking guides that take you in with the rifle and everything else and in south africa or anywhere in in, in the eastern side of africa where this goes on in the savannah environments uh, they, if they know what they're doing they can get you into those fantastic experiences quite quite easily that 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 take people thousands of years back in time basically i mean really it's just goes back primeval experiences uh, and that's what people want in africa anyway a lot of people a lot of people want that so some people are a bit gruesome and want to see kills but uh by and large, people want to be in awe of Mother Nature, I think, and uh, and who can blame them? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Because that, that was something that I noticed when I was in Tanzania. I mean, this was many years ago, probably 20, 20 something, 25 years ago. Uh, but uh, the the uh, one of the uh, areas that we liked the most was actually 
both Arusha National Park and Gibbs Farm because there we could actually start, we could walk in nature whilst in the big, um, the big national parks, of course, uh, we weren't allowed actually going outside the vehicles. So, so um, it's certainly a different aspect to the nature watching when you're moving on your feet rather than sitting in a vehicle. Absolutely. No, it's, it's completely different. Um, I think uh, I've never been a motorbike person, but, uh, you know, it's, it, uh, people stress the difference between being on a motorbike and being in a car as an experience of traveling. And uh, I, I think uh, <clears throat> you have to get out and walk. And I try, although it's um, a pretty sedentary experience at Tanzanian Safari, I managed to get as much walking in as possible. Um, and that's the other thing. That's why I've started this thing to highlight the best lodges. And um, yeah, that, I, I saw that blog post of you. I'm, I'm going to link to it also with the, uh, uh, it was a very nice post. And, uh, and uh, as the, uh, there is so much on offer in Tanzania, it's really, really handy to have a, a guide that you did there with the, uh, recommending different lodges for wildlife watching, etc. So uh, very, very, very useful, and I'm very thankful for the existence of that. So I'm going to link to that in the show notes uh, once we have those up. Um, another thing that we can talk about Tanzania that was part of the thing that I planned for this year, but I couldn't get it going, uh, and and very much on many people's bucket list is the uh, uh, climbing Kilimanjaro. Uh, and uh, have you done that? No, my, my eldest son did it. Um, I, I didn't do it. Uh, if there'd been more species up there, I probably would have done it. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing. There's there was too, too many birds uh, only, on, on top. Yeah. There's really only the red tufted malachite sunbird, but uh, they, they say Meru is, is, is in some respects tougher. I didn't do that either, but uh, I lived under it for a long time or on the edge of it. But yeah, uh, yeah if, the thing is that everybody tells me uh, best to take the long, the long route for Kilimanjaro, uh, the longer, you know, the three day ascent <clears throat> to avoid losing people dropping out through altitude sickness on that last yeah. morning of when you summit because it's this <clears throat> all the summiting takes place you know starting at like 2 a.m out of your tent and 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 then you get the idea as you get to a peak or whatever for 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 sunrise you know so uh uh people find that pretty grueling because it, it's a long march uh, across loose sort of shaly rock you know on the top on the summit plateau yeah. Uh, to ascend to, to ascend the actual to get to the actual peak um and it did get there were, for a period whilst we were there it was the stories coming out where it was getting pretty pretty appalling you know like the everest base camp uh route in that uh the the signs of people who've been there before you uh were littered everywhere and uh that didn't appeal to me very much but uh i know again you know if you know the, the right <coughs> guide tour company and the right or know of um mountain guides uh, they can make sure you have a a better experience so um they haven't done it uh i've met lots of people for whom it was on their bucket list uh yeah. and i have worked extensively with guides who 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 basically got into uh 
guiding by being a mountain guide first or a mountain porter even you know so that's one way you can work yourself up out of uh, humble and uh, financially stressed origin to becoming quite affluent is is is, is in the safari industry in in, in tanzania and uh, a lot of people have started that career by being porters in uh, onkili so uh, my idea there, and, and I actually put the program already on the on Seven Wonders Birding website. Well, we're all birders, of course. And uh, as you said, there's not that many birds on top. And so I was looking through all the different ways that you can do Kilimanjaro. And uh, oh. there's, there's, good, uh, there's good birding up to like 3,200 meters. And then, of course, sure. you get yes. into the alpine zone and it sort of drops dramatically. Uh, it's interesting uh, botanically, of course. Uh, you got all the Espelitias and um, no, the Lobelia. Sorry, I'm mixing up the genes here. The Lobelias of Africa, they're very similar to the Espelitias of, of the Paramo in South, South America. Oh. And the Senecios yeah. and all those uh, very, very, yeah. uh, very interesting plants uh, higher up. So, what I came to the conclusion was that since there are so many people wanting to having that as a bucket list thing, uh, summiting Kilimanjaro, all the mm. companies that are offering these, even if they add like an extra day for uh, acclimat acclimatization, yes. they're doing it wrongly. <laughs> Why? Because they, they, are, they don't backtrack. They never backtrack. And uh, for a birder, it's actually a good idea. So like if you take the Coca-Cola route, um, it's called like Marango or something like that, right? I um, can't remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Marango, yeah. yeah Mar Marango route, yeah. So that's uh, the shortest way you can do it is five days, but that's killing for most people. So what they do is they add an extra day, but they're adding that extra day at an altitude. It's only the set on the second day. On the first day, you get up to like, uh, 3,000, no, 2,800 meters or so. I, I think I, I should actually look at this uh, so I have it in front of me here. Um, but anyway, so so you walk up to where there's still some forest and, uh, and, and you know, you can have good birding in the morning as you walk out from there. But then on the second day already, on the second night, you're already up on extremely high altitude and most people will suffer there you know it's just mm. it's too mm. high and mm. and then they have a second night at the same altitude to acclimatize but it's already too high on the first night so uh, to me that sounds extremely extremely strange yeah i don't know i don't know <laughs> why they do that then I, well I I, I I i come to the conclusion is that they have so many people that are not really into the idea that you should backtrack. I mean, it's going to be very hard for them to get up. So the first night is at 2,700 meters. And the second night uh, in these traditional programs uh, would be at uh, four, uh, let me see now, 3,700 meters on the second night. And then, uh, so that, that's already far higher than most people can cope coming straight from almost sea level you know and yeah. so what uh, so i think it's a psychological thing that they don't want to backtrack because they've already gained the ground so to speak yeah yeah and that's why they have yeah. the people staying there at at uh, 3700 meters on the on the on the second night 
So what I suggested to do instead with the uh, organizers there for, for the program that is better for birders is that we actually go down. So on, on the second day, uh, we would go up towards the uh, camp at 3,700 meters, but then backtrack back again to 2,700 meters and stay there for the second night. So you have this work high, sleep low. And the good thing about this, of course, is that we will see more birds as well, because we spend more time in the area where, where they are birds, uh, rather than being suffering on a very high altitude. Uh, so we're adding one day uh, that way. And um, I also looked at the, uh, lo the long route, which, yeah, usually is recommended in terms of uh, coping with altitude sickness. Yeah, yeah. However, That's my understanding of it. Yeah, but, but it's also a very long route. Yeah, so it's I yes, think it is. Yeah, for, yeah, for nine yeah. or twelve days, it becomes extremely uh, expensive, and sure. and even on that route, they go up to very high altitude initially um, in a very short time, which is higher than it's comfortable to sleep uh, your first couple of nights. Yeah, so if you're coming up and you're already sort of done uh, on the second day you're going to still keep on being at over 4,000 meters for a long period of time and you never get that chance to actually um, recuperate your strength or re-oxygenate -oxy your body uh, just because you're being at so high altitude uh, in, from, the, uh, from the initial start uh, rather than sort of backtracking down to lower altitude and then go up again like you know like mountain climbers usually do but it's not applied to the summiting of kilimanjaro strangely enough tanapa you know who, who tanzania national parks authority they are kind of set in their ways and and, and tanzania is a very um, doctrinal kind of place a top-down kind of place you know yeah. uh, so so it's hard to to be innovative and to shift things it's complex to get things changed in tanzania I imagine they have a rationale, but for example, you know, when trying to feed the kites in Gorongoro Crater, um, I learned my lesson then, and the, but then used to throw stuff out for the kites so that people could get, uh, try to take shots of the kites, you know, picking the food yeah. from the ground and stuff like that. But um, uh, it's actually illegal to do that. In the national parks of Tanzania, you're not allowed to feed the wildlife. And this is a big problem in the lodges because, uh, because there's no feeding, there's no feeders, there's no feeding, because it's it's considered that you know all the wildlife should find their own food and all this kind of thing. So so you do actually get fined if you. I had I had to talk my way out of a fifty dollar fine one time at the picnic site at Gorongoro. Um, <laughs> uh, but it also makes 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 my groups into very messy eaters. But uh, <laughs> because <of it>. yeah. <laughs> so if you drop it. Yeah, if you drop it inside the truck in the long go now, it speaks weavers and the endemic rufous tail weaver and um, superb starlings will come into the vehicle and, uh, and really? feed inside the vehicle. Yeah, 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 which is which is which is lovely. Um, of course, in some parts of Tanzania, baboons will do the same trick, and that's not that's not that's um, not so nice. Um, no, not to be recommended. Uh, no. Being locked in a truck, locked in a truck with a with a with a scared baboon is not an unpleasant experience. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. I don't want to have that on my bucket list. In fact, there was at the Ngorongoro Gate uh, an old male. He, he was shot a couple of years ago, eventually, because he was just becoming a menace. 
So, um, you know, and again, that's Tanzania. But, the, you know, Tanzania is a country where there's, there's, there's the rules. And as I said earlier on in this discussion, the, the rules are enforced and they are more so of late. So yeah. uh, that's been good for wildlife, I imagine, during the, during the uh, absence of tourists. Um, but, yeah, undoubtedly people have struggled but but i wonder how kilimanjaro has been because uh yeah maybe they'll have had a chance to clean the place up uh, yeah hopefully hopefully they've done some projects yeah, yeah i, I yeah. know there's been lots of some of the young birders i know have been kind of um press ganged into going up there and uh, on litter picking trips and stuff like that so yeah. so yeah the, the the place it would be good to go in soon after all this uh uh, blows over if in fact that's what happens yeah. yeah the same with everywhere though i mean everywhere i i actually um do have a, a person i met in tanzania he's guiding some north american group i don't know if they're canadian or or, or from the states but he's in he's in northern peru at the moment somewhere he said they've hardly we haven't met another tourist our group hasn't met we haven't met another tourist and uh, everywhere feels and this is direct quote from him incredibly safe yeah, which I thought was exactly. an interesting thing to say. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, we 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 have the same experience everywhere we go. We're, you know, we're basically the only bird is there, and there's very, you know, very few people around, and and people are, uh, and and when you meet people, uh, people are very responsible, be wearing face masks, etc. You know, you feel you feel quite safe. Yeah, Spain is similar, you know, because Spain has um. It, it's still obligatory to wear a mask indoors in places where strangers are gathered together in shops and supermarkets, uh, bars and restaurants. Um, there was nothing and, and, of that in, in Sweden, eh? There was nothing no, of that in Sweden. No, no, it's very strange. It's very strange. And it seems to be a cultural, a cultural difference, you know, that yeah. I don't quite, can't put my finger on it, but the Northern European type of people seem to have a slightly different attitude to all these things from the, the I mean the Spanish underwent an ex, like you did an extreme lockdown at the beginning a, a yeah. very very serious lockdown much more serious than the one in Britain but uh but they they the masking rule still applies and people abide by it and we must wear a mask on public transport uh, yeah. yeah and so on you know so and they they do it willingly uh you know, so uh, I, I don't know. This whole COVID thing defies logical analysis, really. Um, <laughs> Certainly, I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to be here, but I would, I would, uh, I have to say, Elsie's in the other room, so I have to say, I would rather be in Peru. <laughs> 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 yeah, I can't, I can't wait. But hopefully, yeah. I'll be with you in just over a month. Oh, not with you specifically, but over there. Yeah, uh, if, that'd be if fantastic. My, yeah, if the project comes off, but yeah. we're still waiting. Yeah. Still I'm, I'm going to um, do a little bit more promoting also and sending out your email to more people and especially when this comes out also uh, I think uh, people may be interested in contacting you Ooh, that, that's fabulous yeah because uh, as I said before it's my not swan song my Watson song there's there, there so many iconic species in, in South America you know torrent ducks I want to see torrent ducks I want to see yeah. seed snipe you know uh, yeah yeah, of course. Rocks. Harpy eagle, if I can manage it. There's actually a uh, active nest now, but it's a it's a uh, it's a, f a fledged young, and it's pretty old. 
and uh, it's on the Manor Road right now. So I have some clients going to see it today. <laughs> That's what we're recording. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's wow. been recently discovered. I hope they see it. Uh, the adult comes in every two days or so, but uh, the the nestling is around the nest, and it's a big one. You know, it's uh, it's, yeah, it's yeah. Not a, a size of an adult. It's just not fully fully um, uh, cut. You know, it doesn't have all the the plumes, yeah. etc. But uh, yeah, it's a pretty big and impressive animal. So that certainly is something that should be done when you're coming away. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> certainly will. Uh, yeah, big. I think bucket lists and big things. You know, I still think it's pretty fundamentalist. You know, in people's people's brains, yeah. people get moved by the big stuff. There are differences. You know, almost gender specific. Like in Tanzania, giraffe is the national animal, and Arusha National Park is a very high density of giraffes. And we start in Arusha National Park, and we have two full days in there, unlike most tour companies. And uh, and people love it. Uh, do a lot of walking around, and walking around with giraffes as well. And and uh, the women in particular tend to vote it their favourite animal. Without uh, it's just um, two out of three at least I would say vote it favourite animal. Really? Um, yeah, men not so much, but uh, yeah. So, so uh, what do the men vote for? Lions or? No, no. I think no, no. I think lions. <laughs> the boring. Well, no. I mean lions. Uh, you know, in the daytime, and we we're not. You know, you don't do that much driving around at night. So lions at yeah. night are a different a different story. But but in the daytime, lions are mostly snoozing. So that's, so that's what I'm saying. Upset, yeah. <laughs> upset. Yeah. In fact, you know, I, I've I've seen so many lions asleep, and so many of the same lions asleep, probably that uh, I spend a lot of time now trying to identify the flies on the lions because that's... <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine because yeah. yeah. you get some interesting ones, the yeah. sucking ones in particular. So oh, yes, really? so lions, yeah, lions are yeah. No, I um, if we see carapel uh carapels high up on people's uh cat list you know i mean it's a it's a very uh special cat that one and yeah. uh anybody who can catch two sand grouse out of one flock you know <laughs> as they has to be a has to be an amazing character and uh yeah yeah so you you sent me a question about that i'll answer that yeah. separately yeah. yeah but um yeah so all the cats are, are popular always of course yeah um but uh, yeah, I, I don't know really uh, about men having a specific mammal. Not really. The raptors, I think, probably more. You know, the the big eagles. And and although people sort of don't like to really say it, but lapid-faced vulture is, I think, a pretty wow bird. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. You, yeah. See, you see a pair together, you know, close up, people get pretty wowed out. I mean, it's 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 kind of hard when you do it for a living like and you you know don't as you know but i mean it's, yeah when people when it's all condensed into just 16 or 17 days of intense uh, wildlife experiences uh, people get quite um burnt out in a sense at the very end on the last day we do a drive near to kilimanjaro airport into the Maasai steppe mm -hmm. and and we enter a completely new area and we've seen 400 species already or 450 if we're lucky or pushing 450 to add another 25 or something on that last day, people are kind of like, they don't expect it because it, 
it's been tailing off. What we do is start, you know, at, at Kilimanjaro Airport to Arusha National Park and then drive slowly mm. west and then end up on Lake Victoria. And then we fly back to Kilimanjaro and stay at Kia Lodge next to the airport. And then the next, that last morning, or well, the last full day, we go into the Maasai Steppe. And the, the number of species, the, the species accumulation curve for birds has, 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 has leveled off, you know, apart from a, a blip at Speak Bay Lodge when we hit all those extra water birds and stuff. Yeah. But so people have got kind of used to it. But then to see a whole load of new sunbirds and, and other things. That's where you get those pipits as well, right? There's a couple of pipits there, rare. Is that, uh, is that on that day as well, or not? Well, I'm not. I'm not that I'm golden pipit. Are you thinking, or, or I, I or, can't remember now. It was something I saw. When I, there was something that I saw. There was some spot not too far from Arusha uh, um, National Park. Uh, sorry, from Arusha Airport, the Kilimanjaro Airport, where people are mm. looking for rare pipits. It's not my favorite thing to do, but <laughs> no, well, no, I, I like pipits, so I, I wonder which ones they're meaning. The, 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 the thing is that Brian Finch in Kenya is convinced that there's a, a different taxon uh, hiding in plain sight that he's calling Nairobi pipit, which, which, which is very similar in some plumages to, uh, to long-billed pipit. So some people might be referring to that because that, that occurs to the east of Mount Meru and on the lower slopes of uh, Kilimanjaro as well. It seems to have a different ecology from long-billed pipit. It's more often in forest edge and even in clearings in the forest. And he's, he's found it around Nairobi and he sent uh, material off for DNA sequencing and stuff, but I don't know whatever came of it actually. And so that's something to follow up with Brian and other yeah. people um well, maybe yeah, maybe i'm mixing it up uh, there was some other bird but it was there was like one spot that people go to in the it's actually in uh, as i as i understood it it was in some maasai country and uh, yeah i thought it was pipits maybe maybe i'm mixing not it up beasley's lark that's what yeah larks it was it was in larks now i understand that was my bird. And that in Tanzania, that species is the one that uh, possibly is the most critically impacted by lack of birding tourists. Really? I, I phoned a guy who runs Birding Tanzania, a local entrepreneur who runs Birding Tanzania, and he said that BirdLife have a program there that's kind of possibly picked up some of the slack. But basically, what you have there is the same as is happening in Ethiopia with the larks there. Um, you need a certain level of grazing and a certain amount of grazing uh, mm. at different times of the year, not too much grazing when they're nesting and the eggs are likely to get trodden on and so forth. But you do need a lot of grazing. It's a rain shadow species, this one. Um, it's a, you know a separate species from spike-heeled lark in South Africa. And that's probably Beasley's lark is probably the species that has um, that has potentially got closest to extinction. I mean, there were very right. few. There were very few in 2020. So I would reckon uh, less than 50 in 2020. And, uh, you know, every time a birder went, we had a, a whole conservation program organized and you paid 30,000 shillings. So about, um, about 15 US, I suppose, or something for uh, a visit 
and uh, that money went to the Inga, the name of the village is Inga Carrot, and uh, it went to the Inga Carrot village committee. So, so all the people from that village had a, a big stake in protecting Beasley's Lock, and they're not getting that money now. So, and also there are the grazing is contested with a neighbouring village who weren't getting any of the money, and so there was quite a lot of friction between those two communities. Luckily, they're both uh, Maasai, but uh, there was still quite a bit of friction between them. But you know how these things are. But in, in Africa, it's very clear. Uh, it's, 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 hard, it's hard to do uh, conservation when you work with one group and not the other. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And when, and, when, and when there's only limited money and, yeah. and also, you know, training, training up people and, and for it not to be simply, you know, financial, because if... if if it becomes too financial, then when the crisis happens like this, then yeah, you know, you, you put all your eggs in one basket, literally. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, anyway, larks and right. they almost look the same. So <laughs> I've been away. I've been I've been away from uh, Western Palearctic birding for so long, so I can't separate between larks and pipits anymore. And uh, well, uh, when it comes to yeah. uh, when it comes to uh, South American. Uh, pipits. I usually say that we don't really need them. Uh, we have several. <laughs> we have well, I, I, South American pipits, but the, I mean, compared to all the other South American birds, they're pretty boring. But I, you know, I, I, I probably <laughs> couldn't. I didn't say this, but it was one of the first uh, pages I kind of looked at, or one of the first groups I looked at on the app uh, to count up how many were. Too much in the Western the Palearctic and, and in Africa. I, I can tell you that. <laughs> it was about seven, I think. I think it was about seven or something. But I. I thought, yeah, well, don't worry. I, I don't think I'll be homesick too much for pipits, maybe for wheat ears. Uh, but um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, yes, getting, well, I'm getting more into them now after I've seen about 15, 1600 species of birds in 1600 species of birds in Peru. But I, I can tell you that the pipits were not among my favorites to start with. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's a, the, little, the little brown job or whatever is yeah. very much a, 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 a Western Palearctic thing. And uh, there is a, he'll sure remain nameless, but a, a former aficionado, he probably still is of, of Latin America, he used to call it then, but uh, a bird from a famous bird tour company. Uh, he, he, he and I led a, a couple of trips. We did one in Morocco uh, where he spent most of the time wanting to be in Bolivia. And uh, anyway, he referred to that biogeographical area as the uh, Western Pathetic. And, uh, <laughs> so, at the risk of upsetting anybody listening who's, who's, who's a native or denizen of the Western Pathetic, I think at times it does seem rather birdless and certainly rather short on color and, yeah. uh, and, uh, and on awesome <laughs> nature experiences. And uh, after 18 months uh, inside, well, I'm still where I am now. I can see Africa, but I'm not. I can't actually get to it. But I can see it across the water. Yeah. Uh, but you can only fly there from Spain. You can't go officially by boat, even though it's only 14 kilometers away. Oh, really? Um, okay. Yeah, yeah. 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 yeah all the, the, fer the ferries are shut down. Eh? Well, they're just running freight. Oh, yeah. I see. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's tragic. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, 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 oh. yeah. Um, so, so, so we're, we're going to wrap up a little bit, James. We're, sure. It's been, yeah, a, yeah. it's been a long talk um, and yeah. uh, I'm very, um, very, very thankful for you taking your, the time. I have a few things that I usually try to uh, also ask people when they're coming on the show. 
And uh, so regarding books and uh, movies or documentaries about natural history, any books that are have, have had impact on you or that you have recommended to other people? A, a very important book to me was Wild America by James Fisher and Roger Peterson, which I read in 1973. So I don't know when it came out, early 70s, and decided I had to go and try and emulate their trip around the state. And uh, it, it, it's just, I don't know if you've seen it, but it's a story of their trip around North America in the spring of 1952, I think it was. Wow. But uh, it, it was a remarkable, it's a well-written, James Fisher was quite a good writer, better than Roger, but they both write al alternately. It's a very good book. I recommend it. I highly recommend getting it, uh, Wild America. And uh, they go down into Mexico. I'm not sure where, actually. I, I don't think it was Chiapas. But anyway, I was, I was inspired to, to, uh, to do my own uh, between school and university. And uh, I got three months uh, um, two back-to-back -back Greyhound and Mary passes. And the American Birding Association was in its infancy then. And, right. uh, it was fantastic. And people were so generous and so kind. And uh, no matter whether they were in red or blue states, it was, it was wonderful. And uh, I saw about 625 species or something in three months. And uh, that wow. blew me away, blew me away, really, um, yeah. as, they used, as they used to say. And uh, the, the best part, in terms of bucket experiences, <laughs> was uh, I bust with Ken Kaufman and another guy called Bill Manolis from Brownsville to Palenque via Mexico City. Uh, oh, that was an yeah. that was an epic bus journey. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah, 30, 36 hours I think it took um, or more, but it was about three buses. But uh, it was Ken's idea. Uh, but I'm so <laughs> glad I did. I'm so glad I did it, and, and I haven't been back to the neotropics since then. Wow. Not, not really. So, so I have been before, so it's like the Spanish, like I'm a false starter or a, a false beginner or whatever the expression is, um, you know, but uh, it's, long, it's long overdue that I get back to the neotropics. But I did see uh, quite a few of the representative uh, special, special species, so to whet my appetite. Um, other books? <laughs> Uh, specifically with with the idea of travel involved, or 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 the no, bucket sort of idea. Any any sort of book about uh, birds, wildlife, or that sort of impresses well, you that you're recommending to other people. Oh well, no up to date stuff. I don't know. I'm a bit uh, behind on up to date stuff. I'd have to think. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, as a child, the early field guides that came out, um, again, the Peterson Guide in Europe changed my whole life direction uh, completely uh, and started me off as a kind of lister, my lister mentality, you know, when I saw all those birds lined up on the page. I remember, you know, I, I, I didn't know what I was doing. I was only about eight or nine or something, and I was in a bookshop, my parents used to leave me in bookshops when they had business to go and attend to <laughs> and zoos or bookshops and I, I picked up this uh, field guide I didn't know what it was a field guide to to the birds of Britain and Europe and opened the page on the sea duck and uh, I remember that it was like froze it's absolutely it's like laser printed into my memory that picture of looking opening that picture and seeing those sea duck all the the scoters and the eiders 
in the long tail duck and stuff and thinking wow you know it's just like wow you know and uh, i think i think a wonderful thing that i've always stressed is that uh the good old days when you hadn't seen videos of everything it was really amazing when you encountered a species in the wild for the first time and thought my goodness you know that's what they look like that's the so-and-so that's that one on that book on that page on yeah. the book you know they look like that and luckily, um, so I don't spend my evenings going through the web looking at video of uh, South American birds because I want to have the experience where, you know, as my clients sometimes say to me in, on safari in Tanzania, about one a year will definitely say, well, it doesn't look like that in the book. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I have to say, like, uh, you know, well, that's a book and this is reality out here. This is reality and that's a book. So, but uh, some people, yeah, they, they, some, they take it in good spirit. Um, I don't know, you know, of late about books. Uh, I tend to go more nowadays for biographical stuff written by the old naturalists and uh, tend to read stuff that was um, written before 1970, you know, when things, things started to go a bit pear-shaped. <laughs> Anything in that genre that you recommend with the... the old naturalists well I, anything anything by george Schaller really relating to his any any of his uh experiences uh in different continents um tibet wild is the one i bought most recently tibet wild which is a sort of chronology of his experiences in in on the roof of the world but uh, really, uh, George has had the most uh, amazing life as being the first person to really elucidate, you know, the lives of, of these uh, amazing animals, you know, uh, lion and, and uh, giant panda and uh, tiger and, you know, the, these sort of like key species. Uh, uh, he has, you know, pioneered research yeah. into them. So as in terms of um, great kind of naturalists of of the recent past i mean he's 80 something now and you don't hear much of him now but uh he really he really did a lot so i'd highly recommend reading um anything written by george shower yeah brilliant uh, yeah yeah so uh let's wrap up people may want to contact you uh where can cool. they reach you uh are you on social media um any handles you want to share um the ones for for natural history would would be to use facebook um so that's i've just got my own name and then i'm um happy to happy to get messages via whatsapp and happy happy to get uh, emails on either email address i've got two email addresses either one will do um doesn't matter whichever one people are e find easiest to use one is easy one to remember for anybody who's been to africa is gonalek at gmail.com all right That's... for anybody who knows african birds uh so so yeah gonalek and, and another one another one is my more recent one my icloud address is is is, is more fanciful that's gaia Sturm. so that's a play on classical ancient greek as in the mother planet goddess thing that of Gaia and Sturm, right. we, all, we all know what Sturm is. I don't know what it is in, 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 in Swedish, but uh, anyway, some people, it never gets to me because they just write Storm. So I've had a few e emails go adrift because people have written to Gaia Storm 
at icloud.com, <laughs> but it, they got the idea, but spelt they spelt it wrong. But uh, yeah, so that that one I'll send it to you anyway, so people have just got it written. All right, sounds good. All right, James, okay. uh, it's yeah, been fabulous. wonderful yeah. talking to you, and uh, likewise. Yeah, until next time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. I uh, really appreciate that you took all this time to listen to the whole show. It was a long one this time. If uh, you like this show and this conversation and also this length, um, please let me know. Uh, should I, we have cut it into two episodes or was this okay for you? Also, do leave a review on your podcast app and uh, be sure that you subscribe also it uh, helps with the um, algorithms so that this show will uh, show up to anyone that is interested in birding so thanks again uh, you can always uh, write to me at uh, colibri exp at gmail.com or gunner at sevenwondersbirding.com I'm also on Facebook and on Twitter, so you can reach me there. Thanks a lot, and I will talk to you soon. Bye-bye.